the living stone and a chosen people. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. As we turn to your word now, Lord, seek your straying servant. Give us understanding according to your word. Teach us your decrees. Sustain us and deliver us according to your promise that we may live and praise you as your people. For we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, do keep that uh, Bible passage, short Bible passage open that Nick just read for us. I don't think, no, I've had PowerPoint failure there this evening. Uh, this was the slide you would have seen that would have helped you through, but you're not going to see it now, so that's no good. It's still on my computer at home. It's going to be one of those evenings. Let's hope it looks up from here. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 is our text uh, this evening, and it's all about uh, God's temple. I wonder what comes into your mind uh, when you hear the phrase uh, God's temple or God's house. Uh, Often the language you use about church buildings uh, is quite confusing and uh, uh, leads people uh, astray. Uh, You'll find people talking about buildings like this and identifying uh, sanctuaries and uh, altars uh, and other sorts of temple language. Uh, even here, uh, the bastion uh, of uh, Protestantism that we are at St. John's Hartford, uh, there's a light switch around there marked altar. And uh, in our church, let me assure you, we don't have uh, an altar, we have a table, but more of that in a few moments. How do we work out what a temple is, uh, what God's house uh, is? Well, let me illustrate uh, the issue for us uh, with... Um, uh, an anecdote that uh, I heard a few years ago from an Australian uh, preacher is uh, how he told the uh, experience of his own confusion uh, in this matter. Uh, he and his family had come over to the UK uh, so that he could speak at a conference, a preaching conference, in fact one that I attended. And while they were here, uh, the family decided to do a little travelling and uh, sightseeing. Uh, so one day on their trip they were in Cambridge and they went to see uh, the wonderful King's College Chapel. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's an extraordinarily uh, beautiful uh, and magnificent building. Uh, but as they went around the building, the preacher noticed two things. Uh, the first thing he noticed was that there was uh, the muted but constant sound of cash registers uh, as the chapel shop did a roaring trade uh, in touristy mementos. And second, as you went up towards the choir and communion table, end of the building, uh, there was a sign which said, please keep silence, this is the house of God, the house of prayer. Well, this gave my fellow Australian something of a dilemma. Uh, The sign claimed that the building he was visiting with his family was a temple, uh, the temple of the Lord, the house of prayer. If that sign were true, if King's College Chapel was uh, at the house of God, a temple of God, uh, then What about all those who are busily and noisily taking cash from the visitors? 
Hadn't Jesus set a rather clear precedent for uh, how to deal with people who uh, do their business in the temple of God? Uh, Surely as a sincere follower of Jesus, uh, he should make a whip of cords like his master, uh, turn over the tables, uh, break down the cash registers, uh, and drive uh, those trading in the souvenirs from the building. Well, happily for his uh, continued liberty uh, and presence at the conference uh, which I attended, uh, he remembered what Peter had taught in the second chapter of this letter, that the temple of God was no longer a physical building, not even one as glorious as King's College Chapel. Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ, uh, the people who make up God's family, that now is the proper uh, body to use to, uh, to describe with this temple language. Uh, we are the place where God dwells. Whether or not we uh, meet in a building, uh, or as many of those uh, newer churches in Africa, uh, and I'll be meeting some of their ministers uh, in a couple of mo- in a, uh, six weeks or so's time uh, now, and they meet in open areas around trees, uh, or very often in buildings that don't yet have roofs. And so he concluded instead that the sign urging silence was entirely inappropriate uh, and decided as an evangelist, uh, with all those tourists from far-off lands, many of them likely not Christians, uh, what was needed was not silence, but the preaching of the gospel. So he went up and down uh, the magnificent uh, choir stalls, uh, loudly proclaiming the kingdom of God uh, to anyone who would listen. I think his family were a little embarrassed, uh, but no one arrested him. They probably just thought he was strange. Uh, Well, I tell you that story because many people think of church buildings in the way that that sign pointed to in that chapel. But the good news that Peter shares with us tonight uh, in the scriptures is that this building, no building currently standing in the world today, is the house of God. But we are. We are the dwelling place of the living God. Uh, We are the holy place uh, where God has come and chosen in his grace and power to make his dwelling. We are the temple and house of God. You see, before we can hear what Peter says about the uh, the church being the temple or the house of God, we just need to be clear that all the confusing language we've accrued uh, over the centuries to do with ecclesiastical buildings uh, is entirely unhelpful. So please, uh, just think about the language you use to refer to things. That's a table. Uh, We don't sacrifice any bulls on it. There is uh, nowhere for the blood to go. Uh, It is not an altar. You kill animals on altars. We share a meal, the bread and wine that Jesus told us to share, to remember his death on the altar of the cross of Calvary. Uh, This church building It's just that, a building, a rain shelter, uh, and uh, a place where, at the moment, uh, we're cold when we want to be warm, and we're warm when we want to be cold, uh, but ideally when the thing is working properly and the weather doesn't keep changing, uh, a place where we can be of sufficient comfort to do what we're doing now, to pay attention to the word of God, uh, to sing the Lord's praises uh, without getting wet. Uh, It's interesting the way that through the years, the 11 years now since we planted Christchurch, Uh, There's been a a steady stream of people on the fringes uh, of things uh, who uh, would always default to turning up here if they don't come to any other church at the moment because Christchurch isn't a proper church. It's a railway station. There's no stained glass. There's uh, no tower. It doesn't look proper. So if we think these things don't matter, uh, friends, they do. Many people are confused uh, about where one goes to meet with God. 
Well, the place where God comes to dwell, uh, Peter says, is here. It's among us. Look at verse 5 of 1 Peter 2. You, Peter says to us, as Christians, if that's what we are here this evening, uh, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, to understand what Peter means by uh, Christians being a spiritual house, we do need to know the uh, the model of the temple that he has in mind. And, of course, it's the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a picture of it, uh, or at least of the wall that still stands. Uh, like the tabernacle or tent that went before it, it was, in its time, uniquely God's institution. Unlike King's College Chapel, it didn't come in uh, to being through the mere whim of a human king. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was the one and only place where God had chosen to dwell among his people. And he did uh, for the centuries uh, under the old covenant when those promises uh, pertained. But God is not an Englishman. And he has never drawn near to people in an earthly English building. There was only ever one physical temple where God chose to dwell. And in the end it was desecrated and abandoned. And it was the place where he made himself known in Jerusalem, in the temple, in those centuries of the old covenant. He revealed his glory from his people uh, via his priest. His uh, word was made known. Uh, That house of God was the center of the sacrificial system, and they had altars upon which bulls and goats were sacrificed. The blood poured out, standing uh, as uh, a symbol of the Lord's uh, desire to forgive, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That stood then. That temple has long been destroyed and any attempt to take the initiative and build a new one is just human arrogance. Does that mean, therefore, that they had it better under the old covenant? Not at all. Far from it, Peter says. For now, verse 4, as you come to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Where is the house of God? Well, since the coming of Christ, it's not physical, but spiritual. He is the one who in his own person brings the very presence of God into human experience. And as he lives still, and as his word is proclaimed and believed, his word that says he will dwell with us as we meet in his name, and as he constitutes us as his people, we now, are the ones who are together, corporately, the house or temple of God. And in these verses, uh, Peter has, as it were, taken that old temple, uh, now destroyed, and said, look what it points to, something even better, uh, that wherever Christians are gathered uh, in the churches around the world and through time, there is the temple of God, uh, there is the dwelling of God, there we may meet with him, and know ourselves truly to be his holy people. And Peter here in these verses uh, makes three key points about how that spiritual house uh, is constructed. First, Jesus Christ is its cornerstone. Uh, In God's uh, spiritual house, Jesus is the living stone, the chosen and precious cornerstone. 
that the cornerstone uh, defined and supported the whole structure uh, of any ancient building. Uh, the massive stone was the uh, first to be set in place. It would be uh, firmly based, absolutely level, uh, exactly positioned to determine the angles uh, of all the walls that would then flow uh, along its lines. Everything was built on it or aligned with it. Uh, all depended upon it being strong and true. And Peter says, that's who Jesus is. He's the very foundation, uh, the ones who give the structure and the stability and the shape uh, to us as we gather uh, built on and around him. And here again we come across that word uh, living. If you've listened carefully through uh, Peter's letter so far, we uh, are those, uh, he said back in chapter 1, who were given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, We've experienced that new birth through the living and enduring word of God uh, towards the end of the first chapter. And that living hope that is the fruit of trusting God's living word is built on the solid foundation of a living stone. It's a curious image, isn't it? A stone doesn't live. But Christ is that living stone, uh, the risen Lord Jesus, uh, who gives us a message that lives today and a hope that lives in our hearts as we trust in him and as we allow ourselves, as we put our trust in him, to be built in uh, to this temple that he is constructing today. He's our foundation stone. And as that cornerstone, he defines and supports uh, the entire structure uh, of God's temple. He himself is our life. And our very being. And there's such encouragement here. Uh, again, the church uh, is not built by human beings. Uh, of course, it's a human institution. Uh, and through the 20 centuries, uh, various expressions of that institution have risen and fallen, uh, come and gone, uh, fallen into corruption, been reformed, uh, and so on. But the church, uh, the church uh, that transcends the merely human institution, that is built by and upon Jesus Christ. And that is why it matters not in the end one whit, whether we are members of the Church of England, a geographical and historical reality for a few centuries, and maybe the Lord will spare it for a little longer, maybe he won't, but it matters enormously that we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, and if we have then we are being built together into a living house upon him, the living stone. And whether we call ourselves Anglicans or Baptist or Methodist or anything else, it matters, do you see, not at all. It matters only whether or not we've put our trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make everything Ian said before redundant, where the Lord chooses to bless as he is doing. Uh, those parts of the Anglican communion that are being faithful uh, to his word, uh, then we still may be encouraged uh, to see what God is doing uh, and to get alongside him in it today. Uh, And we ought to take our stand uh, in defending the honor of the Lord uh, where people are claiming uh, to be ministers uh, and are not doing so. Nevertheless, we must see beyond all of that to what Christ is building uh, in this eternal uh, and living temple. He is, uh, Peter says, the stone uh, you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now, this one who is now living was once dead, uh, has been rejected uh, by man. That is the cross 
And yet, in that very act of human rejection, the plan of God to reconstitute a people who would know him in his power and mercy was being fulfilled. And Chris was helping us think a little bit this morning about, again, another aspect of that, that if we follow Christ, if he is our cornerstone, well then what that looks like as God builds us together in the temple is going to be a walking in his footsteps. There will be a rejection also for us, and yet it will not be that God's purposes of building his temple have been frustrated, but rather the means by which he does that building uh, is through human weakness uh, that he might demonstrate his own great power, uh, human failing that he might demonstrate his extraordinary grace. And as we were thinking in another place uh, where Peter preaches, Acts 4, we thought of this a few weeks ago, uh, Peter goes on to say, doesn't he, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the living stone, is the only place to meet with the living God. He's the only one who can give us uh, this living hope. He has only one temple, uh, and it's built only upon him. And we must say that uh, graciously and gently to be sure, but uh, firmly and confidently that other religious paths and other temples uh, are not built on the true foundation. They're not built on the living stone uh, who came from heaven and is the only one who can take us uh, through the end uh, into the new heavens uh, and the new earth. The temple of Jesus is the only one that can withstand the final earthquake of God's judgment uh, and remain firm into eternity. Uh, And Jesus, do you see, uh, not part of the temple furnishing uh, in the spiritual house, able to be rearranged, the cornerstone, the one upon whom we build and around whom we unite, who is the sufficient foundation for us to know God in eternity. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Secondly, Jesus, this cornerstone, is the salvation of those who believe. We've thought of this already and are going to explore it a little more. The first quote from Isaiah in verse 6 is a promise from God. See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But in Isaiah, that quote comes in the context of the Lord's condemnation of his ancient people's arrogance. It comes from a time when the people of Judah believed that they were judgment-proof. They thought that the presence among them of the Jerusalem temple meant they could live how they liked. After all, God had said he would dwell among them forever. And in their arrogance, they thought they were secure They might have thought, well, God will forgive us, that's his job. We're safe here. Look at our marvelous temple, look at our structures. Uh, We don't need to worry too much about a living faith or a close walk with God. Let me read you the passage that Peter quotes. It's from Isaiah 28, verse 14, if you're taking notes. uh, And you'll see the context of these uh, words. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered a covenant with death, with the grave we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. 
I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. The people Isaiah was speaking to were so sure they were safe that they had, as it were, entered a covenant with death. They were so confident that God wouldn't judge them. It was as if they'd made a contract with death and hell who somehow promised not to trouble them. It sounds laughable, doesn't it? Who would think of such a thing until we realize, of course, that that's exactly the lifestyle of most of our neighbors and ourselves instinctively in our hearts, treating God's judgment as a trivial matter, treating our mortality as a thing that we put away to the sidelines. And even when we finally have to confront it, well, we don't bring it, as it were, into anywhere that we're going to come across in our normal lives. The Lord says, His judgment will come. His scourge will sweep by and the refuge of lies the people had made for themselves. Such an impressive religious edifice. Again, we may see the parallels, mightn't we, in our own uh, culture. All of it, the Lord says, would be swept away. And in the midst of that judgment comes salvation. It's always the way uh, in the Bible. In the midst of the flood, uh, there is the ark of Noah. Uh, As as the Red Sea uh, washes away the Egyptians, God's people are safe. Uh, In the cross, uh, where sin is condemned, salvation is offered. Well, that's what's going on here in Isaiah, and it points towards Jesus. Uh, In the midst of that false religion, easy assurance And all uh, sorts of people who are saying weird and wonderful things about God, but never really taking him seriously. The Lord said through Isaiah, the one who trusts in him, in the Lord, will never be put to shame. And so Peter says, well, now that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, and it is still in us and for us today. In the midst of a world that thinks God is not to be taken seriously, his judgment a laughable or trivial matter not to be feared. Peter takes a passage of scripture that says, no, judgment is coming on the arrogant and the complacent, but it's not sweeping everyone away. He's provided one rock that will stand firm when the flood passes through, and that rock is Christ. And if our trust is in him, well, then we will stand firm as the judgment sweeps through. And this cornerstone, this immovable cornerstone, chosen and precious to God, indeed his own son, is the very salvation of all who will put their trust in him. That by faith, we stand on the rock. Jesus taught that too, didn't he? That if we hear his words, if we put them into practice, then when the judgment comes, there are echoes of Isaiah 28 in that image as well. Well, then we shall stand firm. We're built into his temple on him as the cornerstone. Now, to you who believe, verses 7 and 8, this stone is precious. Friends, when we've started to realize the depth of our own sins, the wonder of God's mercy, the extraordinary grace he would show even to people like us, how precious Jesus becomes. And if Jesus is not precious to you, well, then do you realize just how wicked you are and uh, just how perilous is your situation? Are you deceived by your own heart 
and the surrounding world that laughs at the idea of a God of holiness and wrath. When you see who Jesus is, his great love for us, and having done everything that we might be brought home to God and built into his own living house, well, how precious that stone becomes. He continues, but uh, to those who did not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's just another word uh, for cornerstone. They may have rejected it, but they were foolish to do so because it is the foundation stone. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So here Jesus stands as the uh, cornerstone uh, with whom all must deal. Uh, We've thought about those who step, as it were, onto him and are delivered from the judgment. Well, here is the other side. Those who reject salvation embrace damnation. Jesus, the cornerstone, uh, faces us with a stark choice. We can either be uh, built on him into God's temple, saved from judgment, or we will be crushed by that same stone. It's a powerful and awful image that Peter uses. The quote from verse 7, in verse 7 from Psalm 118, makes it clear that people's refusal to believe in Jesus doesn't stop him being the only cornerstone. Jesus himself quotes the same verse to go on to say very similar words in Matthew 21, what will happen to those who persist in rejecting him as the appointed stone upon whom we must build our lives. Jesus says, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Well, the final Old Testament quote in verse 8 brings out the stark nature of the choice involved. Again, it's helpful to hear the context. This is why I only wanted to look at a few verses with you this evening. They're very densely packed. I'm going to read a few verses this time from Isaiah 8, verse 11 and following. Uh, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, uh, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that this people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Again, Isaiah was speaking God's message in troubled times. A judgment was threatened upon the nation. The people were afraid. They were afraid, though, at the wrong thing. They were afraid of the invading enemy. They were afraid for the future. They were afraid that their material well-being might be threatened. There are many things to be fearful of in this world, aren't there? Isaiah's and uh, Peter's point is not that those things are not in themselves fearful, but that God is the one to be feared beyond all of them. The greatest worry we ought to have is that one day we'll meet with God. But by and large, people are too busy, aren't they, worrying about everything apart from God. They never quite get round to it. And Isaiah appeals, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. That's biblical logic, strange though it sounds to our ears. If we put our fear in the Lord, uh, then at precisely that moment, 
all the other fears that so flood our lives begin to assume their right proportions as lesser things. In fact, as we fear the Lord, it becomes at that very moment, in Isaiah's words, a sanctuary, a refuge, a safe place in a world that assaults us constantly with things that make us anxious. It is in the fear of the Lord that we learn to stop fearing men. It is in the fear of the Lord that we discover the peace of being part of God's own family, such that we will uh, pass through even death itself to come safely through to the other side in the age of the resurrection and in the very presence face-to-face with the Lord and all those other fears around. If we will but fear the Lord first, well, then they all begin uh, to uh, assume their proper and smaller size and we can begin to live uh, with faith and with confidence and Ironically, even as we fear the Lord, we know the peace of the Lord in our hearts. Peter says, for those who refuse to come to him like that, refuse to bow before him, to fear him, all those other awful consuming fears are all they have. And in the end, the judgment will sweep them away. That is a dreadful warning that God is giving us this evening in his word. But in the warning an encouragement, a plea to come and trust and stand on the rock and be delivered. God is building a house, a temple, a a people in the whole world. As God uh, gathers people through Jesus' gospel uh, in every continent. And as we respond to Jesus in faith, well then we step up onto him as that rock. We're uh, built into his living house. As we fear the Lord, uh, we discover the salvation of our souls and strength and grace to face every other fear in our lives. He is the salvation of those who trust in him. And the urgency of our taking that good news into the world is that he will, in the end, prove to be the destruction of those who do not believe. It is his own words, Jesus says, uh, that uh, he will crush those Uh, who do not receive him uh, as Lord. So come, trust. And as we come and trust, uh, be encouraged who you are and where you belong, whatever the human institution of the church may get up to, and go out ready to share this good news. For the flood is coming. The cornerstone uh, will one day be confronted by all people. And the only way to face him with confidence is to receive his gracious offer of forgiveness and to stand on him by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we're about to sing, you are made the sure foundation. All of human history, all of human existence comes from you and will end in you. Lord Jesus, please, would you help us to see the world the way it really is, made through you and for you, and one day to be held account by you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you cause us to respond in faith and repentance this evening, to fear and love and worship you, and so discover that you are our foundation, you are our salvation, you are our hope, our joy and our strength. 
Lord Jesus, be glorified and build your church, we pray. We ask it to your Father's glory. Amen.